Uh, welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and I am the pastor here. And uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. And, and I promise you don't have to wear a bow tie. Um, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not really sure what else to say other than that. But, um, but we are glad that you are with us, and, uh, and it is good to be with you. It is good for us to be together. And this morning, the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at is Psalm 24. And so if you have a Bible, please turn there. To Psalm 24. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 433. We're looking at Psalm 24. Now, if you're uh, new with us, if you've only been with us for maybe a week or two or, or just the last month or so, you may not be aware, but uh, this summer we're continuing a series in the Psalms that we st started actually years ago. Um, this is our third summer in the Psalms, and Lord willing, we'll keep coming back until we get all 150. But, but if you weren't here a couple years ago when we started this series on the Psalms, then you're not aware that we started this series by looking at Psalms 1 and 2. Now, that makes perfect sense because they're the first two Psalms in the Psalter. Psalter is just another name for the book of the Psalms. But, but that wasn't why we started with Psalms 1 and 2. It's not just because they're the first two. We started with Psalms 1 and 2 because Psalms 1 and 2 set us up thematically for two of the most dominant themes throughout the Psalter. See, Psalm 1, it deals with the law of God law of the Lord. It tells us that the law of the Lord is what we are to follow, that it is better to be in the presence of the Lord, to follow his ways, his laws, than it is to sit in the seat of scoffers, to fo follow after foolishness. And we see that theme of the law of God showing up again and again throughout the Psalter. We hear language like, the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey. It revives the soul. It is the lamp unto our feet and leads us in the way that we are to go. And so Psalm 1 prepares us for the theme of the law. But Psalm 2 prepares us for the other dominant theme throughout this, this altar. And that's the theme of God's kingship. God as our king and the king that would one day come. And that's what Psalm 24 is talking about. You see, Psalm 24 focuses our attention on God's kingship, that he is our king. And I have to tell you that the theme of God being our king is one of my favorite themes in all of scripture. And it might be because I have this romantic view of the king, right? I have Arthurian myth and his knights. It might be because I love Tolkien. We're going to hear from Tolkien in a little bit. But it might be because I love Aragorn and, and the thought of this king who rules. And so I have this romantic idea about the king. But I imagine that for, for some of you, there is no romance surrounding the idea of a king. When you hear king, you don't go in your mind to places of comfort, but actually discomfort. You, you are like Boromir in the Lord of the Rings, who when he is confronted by Aragorn, the king who is to come, he says about him and his city, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. And maybe that's what goes through your heart, too, when you think about king. When you hear that word, I, I don't want a king. I don't need a king. You know, the thought of a king brings discomfort because as soon as we think about a king, we are confronted by the fact that we are not the king. And we, we actually like to rule over our lives, don't we? 
We like to have authority over every aspect of our being. And if there is a king, that means that we are not him. So what are we to do with that? Well, this psalm doesn't say we have no king. And this psalm doesn't say we need no king. Instead, the psalm teaches us how we are to respond. And this psalm leads us how we are to, how we are to reflect upon this king who has come into our presence. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 24. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of God, the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our God, our King, we do thank you that you are our King and that you are our God. And so we pray that as we come to this portion of your word, that you would soften our hardened hearts, that you would open our eyes, unclog our ears, and enlighten our minds to the comfort that comes in serving you, our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings story and you're familiar with Tolkien, then you know that Boromir's statement, uh, Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king, comes at the very beginning of the story. It comes in the Fellowship of the Ring. But, but if you're familiar with the story, you know that, that that sentiment is replaced at the end of the story. You see, at the end of the story, in the book, The Return of the King, evil has been vanquished, the ring of power has been destroyed, and that same Aragorn, who Boromir had once rejected, is now standing at the gates of Gondor. He stands at the gates of Gondor, and now Boromir's brother, Faramir, is there. And Faramir is going to cry out. But he doesn't cry out, Gondor needs no king, Gondor has no king. Instead, he cries out this. He says, Behold... One has come to came, claim the kingship at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing the elf stone. Elazar of the line of Valendil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Now, if you haven't read the book, that meant nothing to you. <laughs> And you're going like, who is this dork? <laughs> Dunedains and swords reforged. And I know, yes, I'm a dork. Okay, it's no problem. But, but the point is, is what, what Faramir is doing is he's reading off Aragorn's CV. You see, this is his resume. This is why he has claim to the throne. 
all of the things that he has done. He wields the sword. He's victorious in battle. His hands bring healing. It's pointing to the fact that he is the king that was promised. That he is the king that they've been waiting for. And once these credentials are called out, the people are then asked a question. Shall he be king? Shall he enter into the city and dwell there? And, and if you're like Boromir and you're sitting there, you might actually be hesitant. Maybe I don't want a king. Great, he, he's done all these wonderful, but, but maybe I want to be king. You know, a little K king. Maybe I really don't need him, right? Maybe there's a little bit of hesitancy, but, but in Tolkien's story, the people don't hesitate. When they're asked that question, shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there, all the host and all the people cried, yea, with one voice. You see, they didn't hesitate at the arrival of the king. Instead, they rejoiced. Because they knew that the presence of the king in their city would bring them comfort. It would bring them exactly what they need. And so they rejoice, they celebrate. And that's what this psalm does. That's what this psalm does. You see, verses 7 through 10, at the very end of our psalm, it's this liturgical uh, piece that shows up at the end. This call and response of rejoicing. Right? We hear in verses 7 and 9 the repeated refrain, Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. And so the image is the gates of the temple, and they're being thrown open, flung wide open. And why? Well, we're told that the king of glory may come in. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. There is no hesitation and there is no reluctance. There's eagerness. Fling open the gates because we want the king to enter. We want his presence. We want his rule. Because when he comes, there is comfort. When he comes, there is comfort. There's comfort because of who he is. You see, this king that is being welcomed into the temple, into the city, he is the king of creation. That's how the psalm begins. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, I don't know if you've uh, noticed this, but when I read through the psalms, and I've read through the psalms a number of times, I'm constantly struck by how frequently the psalmists, the writers of the psalms, speak about God's world. Have you ever noticed that? Like, it shows up all the time throughout the psalms. I want you to have that in your mind as you're reading through the psalms. Maybe you're doing a Bible reading program this year, and, and you're going to read through the psalms. Or, or maybe you're reading them in preparation for Sundays. I don't know what, but as you are reading through the psalms, I want that in the back of your mind, God's creation. And as it's there, you're going to see it all over the place. You're going to hear things like the psalmist saying, how majestic, God, is your name in all the earth. We'll hear words like, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. We'll hear refrains like, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we'll hear songs that sing, praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all the shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, 
for he commanded and they were created. Do you hear that? Like the psalmist is speaking to the creation and saying stars sing, leaves clap, animals dance because you have been created by the king of creation. See, when the psalmist looks upon the created world, he doesn't just see trees and squirrels and mountains and stars. He sees God's, God's handiwork. Or as the French theologian John Calvin put it, the world is a theater to display God's glory. That's what the psalmists see. They don't just see beautiful mountains, and they are, right? Like, we just had friends come through last week. They came through from St. Louis, right? St. Louis, if you've ever been there, is flat. <laughs> I mean, it is like boring flat, okay? You just can see for miles and miles and miles. But here you come, and the first thing they said is what the, is the first thing that everyone says when they come. The mountains are beautiful, right? Like, there is something wrong with you if you don't say that, <laughs> right? The mountains are beautiful. I can't believe you get to live here. The, the, the sun rises and the sun sets and the fog that covers the morning, right? Like, it is beautiful. And we should say that. But we shouldn't just stop there. Because it is not just the mountains that are beautiful and the sunrise that is beautiful and the fog that has that eerie mystery about it. But all that beauty and that mystery and that power, they point to the God who is beautiful. They point to the king of creation. And that's what the psalm does. The psalmist doesn't just stop at looking at the world as, the, as his dwelling place. He looks at the world and sees that it testifies to who God is. That he is the one who created it. He brought forth the mountains and he hung the stars in the sky. And so friends, let us, let us not just be amazed at God's creation. I mean, let us wonder. We should. But let us not just stop at being amazed at his creation. Instead, let us be amazed at the king over that creation. The one to whom the, the heavens are declaring his glory. You see, he is the king of creation. He is the king of creation, but he's also the king in battle. You see, the psalmist's comfort doesn't just rest in the fact that God is the king over creation. He's also the king in battle. The question is asked in verses 8 and 10, who is this king of glory? And then the response, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Verse 10, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Now, these descriptors, strong and mighty, mighty in battle, Lord of hosts, these are all military terms. And they're all speaking of God's power and his victory over his enemies. In fact, these, this refrain that is used, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, mighty in battle, strong. This language is reminiscent of another song. You remember the Psalms are songs. But it's reminiscent of another song, a song that came many, many years before this psalm was ever written. You see, in Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, you remember the story of Exodus. God's people have been in slavery for hundreds of years, and they cry out to God, and God hears their cries, and so he sends a deliverer. And Moses leads God's people out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he leads them through the Red Sea. And on the other side of the sea, what do they turn and see? 
the sea crashing upon Pharaoh's army, right? God has destroyed them. He has brought victory to his people. And so what do God's people do in Exodus 15? They sing. It's another thing for you to pay attention to as you're reading your scriptures, how frequently God's people sing when they are delivered. They just can't help it. It just bursts out of them. That's another sermon, but, but regardless, that's what they do. They sing, and they rejoice, and they sing words like, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Do you hear what they sang of? It's the same thing that the psalmist is singing of, that the Lord is a warrior. He brings destruction on his foes and he triumphs in battle. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. You know, the famous uh, Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, would refer to Jesus as the almighty warrior. The almighty warrior. And he's right. Because though Jesus was crucified and buried, and though he spent three days in the grave, and though it looked like his enemies, hell and death, had defeated him, we know that in his resurrection, he defeated them. The grave could not contain him. All of hell's minions could not defeat him. Because the Lord is a warrior. He is the one who destroyed death and hell and the grave. And she has defeated them. Jesus is the almighty warrior who wages war against his enemies and has triumphed. And because of that, the gates of heaven are thrown open. The gates of heaven are thrown open. You see, what we see here in verses 8 through 10, this, uh, this lift up your heads, excuse me, 7 through 10, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up. This, this is like a triumphant procession. You see, a warrior king would go off to battle. And when he returned in victory, he would return to the city and he would have his army in tow and the people would come out and they would celebrate his victory. And that's exactly what happens in Jesus' ascension. You see, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he is triumphantly entering the city of heaven that he is triumphantly leading his people in on his victor's march. Do you know that church traditions that follow the church calendar? So, you know, we're, we're not big church calendar people. We do Christmas and Easter, you know. But, but the church traditions that emphasize the church calendar on the Ascension Sunday, the day that they focus their attention on the Ascension, you know, it's this psalm that they will often use as one of the readings, and it's this psalm that will sometimes show up as a song because they recognize that throwing open the gates is exactly what heaven did when Jesus ascended into heaven. They opened up the gates to their warrior king, to the one who has triumphed, who has won the battle. And that's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 4. That when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That on his victory march into heaven, he brought and he brings with him those whom he has rescued. He brings you and me. You see, God isn't just a warrior to defeat his enemies. He is a warrior 
who does that for us. When Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he freed us from the judgment that we deserved, and he freed us from the power of sin. He made war, not only against his enemies, but against ours. And he is one. And so his presence brings us comfort because he is the God in battle. He is the king in battle who is victorious. But the psalmist doesn't end there. See, God is not just the king in battle, and he is not just the king of creation. He's the king over us. So look again at verse 1. The psalmist begins, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, right? This pointed us to God being the king of creation. But if we keep reading, he doesn't stop with the world. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. You hear that? The earth belongs to the Lord, but who else belongs to the Lord? We do. Those who dwell therein. That we belong to the Lord. That he is our king. That he is the king over the universe and over your lives. In a few minutes before we come to the table, we're going to have a profession of faith. It's Heidelberg Catechism question number one. And it is probably my favorite of the questions of the, of the reform creeds. And we're going to ask this, I'm going to ask you this question, people of God, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we're going to read, and I'm only going to read a portion of it, but we're going to answer in response to that, that I am not my own. What's your only comfort? That I'm not my own. But belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am not my own. That's what we're going to declare. I am not my own, but my life does not belong to me. It belongs to him. That's what we'll say before we come to the table, and that's what the psalmist says. The earth is the Lord's, the world, and those who dwell therein. So let's think about that now for a minute. If my life is not my own, if I do not belong to myself, but I belong to God, that means that I do not have ultimate authority over my life. I still have agency, right? I still have agency. I'm still held accountable for my deeds, but, but the ultimate authority of my life is not Penny. It's the Lord. That he is the one who has ultimate authority over our lives, and so that means that he has the authority, and he does dictate every aspect of our lives. And what he demands of his people, of his subjects, is absolute moral integrity. That's actually what we see in verses 3 and 4. You see it after declaring that we belong to God. David asked this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? That's a really, really good question. That's an important question. I mean, who gets to dwell with God for all of eternity? Who gets to enter into his holy city? And so David then answers, verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So David gives us four categories, four, four qualities of what it looks like for those who are going to dwell in the city of God. Clean hands, pure hearts, lifting our souls, not swearing deceitfully. Now hands and heart, right, that, that's getting at our outward actions, our hands, 
pure hands in the, in the Old Testament oftentimes is referring to our relation with one another, our actions between one another. So it's talking about our outward behavior, but our hearts, right? Pure hearts, it's speaking about our inward inclinations. And so what David is telling us is that, that both must be innocent, that God's not just concerned about the status of our relationship with one another, but he's concerned about our hearts, our desires, what's going on inside of us. That our thoughts and our desires, our hands, they need to be pure. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, right? That those who can enter into the city do not lift up their soul to what is false. And this is an idiom. It, it's speaking about who we trust. We place our soul in the hands of someone that we trust. And so what have our souls trusted in? That's what it's asking. And what David is indicating is that if we have trusted in anything other than God, ourselves, our intellect, our country, our president, our financial worth, or anything other than God, then that thing is false. It will fail. But David doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Just in case we were sitting there going, well, I'm doing okay so far. <laughs> He's got one more, right? He turns to our lips, our words, that we do not swear deceitfully, that we will not speak falsely. That's what he's saying, that we don't use half-truths and we don't lie, but instead our words are spoken and written. Our words are emailed and texted. Those words are truthful. See, what David is telling us is that God demands innocent actions and pure inclinations and honest speech and complete trust. So what part of your life is not accounted for? Right? Like, it, every part of my existence has been described in those four attributes, right? What do I trust? My thoughts, my actions, my words. Right? I mean, even, even if I thought, well, well I, I could just live this cloistered life away from other people, and then my problem with my words, like I wouldn't be saying bad words about people, and, and I, you know, I wouldn't do impure things with my hands because they'd just be gone. I could, but then I still have my heart, right? And my thoughts, and the inclinations of my soul. You see, what what we're realizing here is that God, God desires all of us. He wants absolute moral integrity. So how are you doing? Like, you're doing pretty well with that? Clean hands, pure hearts, trusting in yourself, trusting in God, using your words honestly and truthfully. I mean, you, you're doing, how, how are you doing? You see, if we compare ourselves to each other, we might be doing all right, because the truth is, is I can always find someone who's worse than me, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Yes? <laughs> but if I'm comparing myself to the king of the universe, who is the standard in which we are to compare ourselves, well, we have to ask the same question David asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And what's the answer? Not me. Not you. One theologian put it this way. He said, these requirements, if we take them seriously, bring us to the end of ourselves 
and they show us our sin. And they do. So we have to ask ourselves, why is this so comforting? Like, if this is what comes with having a king over us, then why is this so comforting? Because this doesn't feel comforting to me, <clears throat> right? Seeing my own sin, I, I don't like that, right? Like, if I see my sin in the mirror, like, let's just break the mirror. Let's be done with it. Turn off the lights. I don't want to know, right? We, that's not comforting. Why would we be confronted, why when we are confronted by the reality that we can't ascend the hill of the Lord and can't enter his holy place, that we belong to a perfect Lord whom we can't measure up to, why would that bring comfort? Because the truth is, is that though we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord, he can. Christ can. Right? I mean, Jesus is the one with clean hands and a pure heart. He is the one whose soul is not lifted up to what is false, and he is the one who does not swear deceitfully. He is the one who stands before the gates, and they swing open, welcoming him in because he is deserving to enter. Because, as Hebrews tells us, he has been tempted in every way that we have, and yet he did not sin. And so he is welcomed into the th heavenly city because he is the perfect king. Because he is the one who has triumphed in every place where we have failed. And why that brings us comfort is because when he comes, he comes with us. He brings us with him. You see, he does not leave us outside of the holy city, but actually he beckons us to follow him. To follow him through those gates. So much so that the book of Hebrews tells us that we can now approach the throne room of God with confidence, not in our pure hands, but in his pure hands. We can approach the throne room with confidence because the king of the universe, he is sitting at the right hand of the father in David's throne. And as he sits there, he sits as our advocate. He sits there and he claims us for himself. He takes his righteousness and he pours it out on us. That's what 1 Corinthians tells us, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God. And friends, that is the greatest blessing that Christ, our King, bestows on us. That is why it brings us comfort. Not because of our works not because of our clean hands or our pure hearts, not because of our perfect, honest words, but because of his. That is why we are brought comfort. That is why we rejoice in his presence and his coming. That is why we celebrate that the gates have been opened, that I'm not my own. I'm not my own, but belong body and soul to Christ the King. Friends, that is not just a name over the door. I love the name of our church. It's my favorite name of any church. Because Christ is the king. And every time we pull up and every time we walk through those doors, we are reminded that Christ is the king. That he is the king over the creation. And he is the king who has fought our battle. And he is the king over our lives today and forevermore. And friends, that is what brings comfort. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we do rejoice and we celebrate. We celebrate the comfort in knowing that we are not our own, but that we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who has defeated all his and our enemies and rescued us from our sin. And so we rejoice and we praise you. And we ask that you would remind us of who he is and who we are, that we are your subjects. And that would bring us comfort to follow you, to know you, to love you, our king, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, amen.